0: episode of Read Me A Story we've reached the last few chapters of Precious Time by Erica James. Clara has decided she must meet up with Todd whilst he's still in this country and tell him that Ned is his son. Casper is with Damson who is coming to the end of her life. How will he, Jonah and especially Gabriel deal with another death in their family? Will Clara give her blossoming friendship with Jonah an opportunity to develop? Let's find out. Chapter 52 The mail at Rosewood Manor was delivered by van, usually at around 10 o'clock, and after someone had carried it up the long drive from the postbox by the gate, it was sorted and placed in the appropriate pigeonholes in the purpose-built shelving unit in the dining room. Damson's was brought up to her by one of Roland Hall's acolytes, a frumpy earth mother type in sandals. That morning, Casper decided he would check Damson's pigeonhole himself. It was Monday, and he'd been at Rosewood Manor for over a week, and while the place and its creepy inhabitants continued to get on his nerves, had him wanting to nuke all of the brain-dead idiots, its isolated location and day-to-day routine made him focus on what was important. Being with Damson was all that mattered now. The rest of the world could go hang as far as he was concerned. He didn't know how much longer he would stay. That depended on his sister, but he didn't care. It was a relief to have escaped his problems at home. When he had arrived, he'd been worried sick about the loss of his business, the money he owed, and the humiliation. Previous business ventures that had gone belly up on him had involved other partners and backers so that the fallout had been shared. This time, the buck had stopped with him, and there had been no one to bail him out. But stuck here in the middle of nowhere, he was experiencing a strange, unexpected sense of freedom. It was as if he was in exile, buffered from the raging storm the Indian revenue and his creditors had whipped up, and he felt absurdly safe. It was weird, and he had told Damson about it, just as he had told her everything since his arrival. She smiled, especially when he confessed to having thrown away his mobile phone, so he could be doubly sure that no one would track him down. He had driven into the nearest town for some items of clothing to tide him over, some new shirts, underwear and socks, paid for by Damson, and on the way back he had stopped the car and hurled the phone into the air. Hearing it crack open against a dry stone wall and smashed to a thousand pieces had been surprisingly satisfying. Damson had made no comment on what he had just told her, but had asked if he would do something for her. They were sitting in a secluded spot in the garden. The afternoon sun was shining down from a clear sky, but despite its warmth, Damson needed a rug over her legs. On the other side of a wall, they could hear the irritating chatter of a group of inmates who were working on the vegetable plot. They were discussing the most humane way to deal with the army of slugs that overnight had invaded their organically grown crops. What is it? he had asked, his heart bursting with the need to make her well again. "'to have her as she'd once been. "'I want you to accept that what we did as children "'and continue to do as adults was wrong.' "'Her voice was faint and he had to strain to catch her words. "'We held Jonah responsible for destroying our family, "'for taking our mother away and for making Dad so unhappy. "'But we both know the truth, "'have known it since the day we first blamed him.' "'She paused as if stocking up on air and energy.' We both held on to that anger, in the misguided hope that it would protect us from the pain. But Casper, it caused us so much more. It still is, for you, isn't it? Covering his hand with hers, she held his gaze steadily. We turned ourselves into victims, when really we're survivors. Remember that, Casper. And here's a little Rosewood Manor truism for you, one that will make you shudder with cynicism, but I want you to think about it. For every 60 seconds of anger you experience, you deny yourself a minute of happiness. From nowhere a smile had appeared on her face, and suddenly the real damson was there beside him, the beautiful, bright-eyed twin sister who had comforted and empowered him and meant everything to him. There was just one letter in damson's pigeonhole, and Caspar instantly recognised the handwriting on the envelope. Climbing the stairs and ignoring the moronic greetings of passers-by, He gripped it and felt that his haven was under attack. The outside world was never far away, no matter how much he kidded himself. Damson was sitting in her wheelchair by the window when he tapped on her door and stepped inside. She was combing her cropped hair. When he had asked her why she had had it cut, she said, It seemed frivolous in the circumstances. You don't like it, do you? Not much, she'd said. He found women with long hair attractive. He had never looked twice at a woman with short hair. As he looked at Damson now, he saw that she appeared weaker today. He held out the letter to her. She hesitated, then said, You open it for me, darling. It was almost as if she had been expecting it. You don't seem surprised. Does he write to you often? She put the comb down on the table beside her. No, but I was expecting this one. The pieces are all coming together, just as they should, just at the right time. He slit open the envelope. There was just one sheet of paper. The writing was uneven, the lines badly spaced, and there were crossings out in several places. Damson sank back into her chair. Read it to me, please. Are you sure? She sighed heavily. Yes, and read it nicely. He caught a hint of a smile as she said this. Nicely does it, then, he said. Dear Damson, Just lately I've been forced into thinking a lot about the past, And I'm ashamed to say it's been a painful process and made all the worse by knowing that I put you and Casper through a hell of a time. I know you will probably regard this letter with cynicism and I can hardly blame you for that. But please, I would very much like to see you again. Casper too. I've written to him in the hope that the pair of you might be prepared to forgive a stupid, selfish old man who should have known better. It would mean everything to me if you would get in touch. Regards, your father. Casper lowered the letter and looked at his sister. Her eyes were shut, her head tilted back against the chair. He was used to seeing her fall asleep without warning, but he had never seen her so still. He cleared his throat. Damson? She didn't answer. He bent down to her. Damson? He was frightened. He reached out to her. At his touch, her eyelids opened and relief, like none he had ever known, washed over him. He swallowed his fear. She took the letter from him and stared at it, tears filling her eyes. I said the pieces were coming together, didn't I? I'd rather they didn't if it meant you could be well again. It's the way forward, Casper. If the future is going to mean anything for you, you must do as he asks. What about you? She held the letter to her chest. This is enough for my future. He'll understand. Understanding only one horrible truth in all of this... a future without Damson would be worse than any hell his father could imagine, Caspar left her sleeping peacefully. He went downstairs and sat in the garden where yesterday he and Damson had chatted. It was another warm sunny day and as if he were locked in a time loop he could hear the same people arguing the toss about the best way to deal with slugs. Jars of homemade beer was held up as the ideal solution. Take a bloody great spade to them, he yelled at the brick wall. Smash their stupid brainless bodies in. The voices went quiet. For once, I'm in agreement with you. Casper turned his head sharply and saw that Roland Hall had crept up on him. Oh, it's you. What do you want? Though Damson had told him repeatedly that Hall was a good, sincere man, that he had never tried to turn their friendship into anything more, or to inveigle money out of her, Casper still didn't trust him. But then, other than Damson, who had he ever trusted? Hall sat down. I want to talk to you about Damson, he said. It's been your sister's intention to move into the local hospice when she felt she couldn't cope with the pain any more. I think that time is drawing near. Caspar wanted to take a spade to Hall and smash him to smithereens to see the man's infuriating face pulped. "'You want to be rid of her now, do you?' he muttered savagely. "'She's become a nuisance, is that it? "'Frightened that the smell of death will scare the punters off?' "'Hall's expression was impassive. "'It's what she wanted, Casper.' "'Exasperated, he dragged a hand over his face. "'Tell me, Hall, what the hell did you do "'before you took up scamming, deluded fools "'who were more concerned about the finer feelings of slugs than themselves?' "'You're so bloody inscrutable. What were you?' An MI5 interrogator? Actually, I was a monk. Caspar laughed nastily. A monk? Oh, that's a good one. But don't tell me, the celibate life proved too much of a challenge for you. I had no problem with the vow of chastity. It was the other monks I found difficult to live with. There was no escaping them and their inbuilt prejudice of right and wrong. So what's different about this place? Hall sat back, steepled his hands together in front of him tips of his fingers just meeting. I'm not saying it's perfect here, community life can never be that. Put a group of people together and it's human nature for them to disagree over something or other. Here at Rosewood Manor in our search to build a caring and sustainable lifestyle we value autonomy and independent thinking. We try to support one another and support ourselves in any way we can, for instance by growing and selling organic food. He counted his head towards the brick wall. But even that provides a breeding ground for dispute. It means we have to try harder to be more self-aware. And while we're striving to achieve all that, no one at Rosewood Manor is forced to be what they're not. So long as one isn't harming another person, one can be oneself here without fear of being judged. It's why your sister has enjoyed being with us. Caspar took this as a criticism of his sister, which he couldn't countenance. Damson has never been frightened of anyone or anything. Hall looked at him hard. That really isn't true, Casper, and it's time you realised it. Damson was terrified of herself and what she was capable of inflicting on her mind and body. She came to us crippled by fear and regret. She'd had two abortions by the age of 22 and she never forgave herself. It's haunted her for most of her life. Caspar's jaw dropped. No. That can't be true. I don't believe you. She would have told me. She never wanted you to know. She told me you idolised her and saw her as perfect. She hated knowing that she wasn't, hated knowing that she'd let you down. But she didn't, cried Casper. She hasn't let me down. She could never do that, not ever. Hall's voice was steady. Are you sure about that? What about her coming here? Didn't that annoy you? Didn't you berate her for hitching up with a bunch of sad losers whose only interest in her was to relieve her of her worldly goods? Caspar had the grace to turn away. He tried to take in what Hall had told him. He was mortified that he had added to Damson's problems, and worse, that he was perhaps the source of some of them. When you're thinking more clearly, Hall said, you'll understand that Damson has spent most of her life searching for something to make her happy. "'something to take away the guilt. "'She's told me about the series of unsuitable men "'who used and abused her, "'and who, in her own words, "'she used as a mean to inflict yet more punishment on herself. "'Stop! I don't want to hear any more. "'Just be quiet, will you?' Caspar pushed the heels of his hands against his eyes. "'It was too much to take in. "'Unable to speak, he got to his feet "'and left Hall sitting on the bench alone. "'He went back inside the house.' He needed to be with Damson, needed to apologise to her. She was sitting in the window where he had left her no more than half an hour ago. The sun was shining through the glass and its rays lightened her hair, the same colour as his own. He remembered how she used to dye it during the school holidays, much to Val's and their father's horror. One summer, having already dyed it jet black, she had another go at it and it turned a vivid orange. She didn't care. She just laughed and tied it up on the top of her head with a green silk scarf and said, How's that for a carrot head? Nothing bothered her. It's just another experience to add to the rest, she said. But some things had bothered her, and she had not shared them with him. Why hadn't she? The truth put into him. Because she had been selfless in her love and support for him, and, like a spoiled child, he had greedily accepted her unconditional love. By putting her on a pedestal, he had imposed restrictions on what she could do with her own life. He was allowed to change and make untold mistakes, but she wasn't. She was his sister, but he had treated her as a mother, and everyone knows a mother must be constant in a world of chaos and upheaval. He crossed the room silently. There was so much he had to say to her. More than anything, he wanted Damson to know that she would always be perfect in his eyes, no matter what. But when he knelt beside her, took their father's letter that was still on her lap, and laid it on the table. He saw that he was too late. Damson was dead. He held her in his arms and wept. Wept as he had never wept before. Oh, Damson, he groaned, I'm so sorry for what I did to you. I didn't realise. Gona had spent the afternoon on tenderhooks. His GCSE history class was sitting its last paper. Once the exam was underway, he had slipped in at the back of the sports hall and had scanned through the questions, reassuring himself that there weren't any horrible surprises in store for his pupils, or him. But it had been fine. He had covered all the ground in his lessons. He went back to his classroom to share the joys of the 1832 Reform Act with 7B, confident that so long as his students kept their cool, they would do well. When it was all over and the papers had been gathered in, he was waiting outside the sports hall to see how they had survived. He was greeted with a mixture of relief, anxiety and cautious optimism and an element of cockiness from an unexpected quarter. Did you get the eight main points to the Treaty of Versailles? he asked the group. Jays grinned at him. No sweat, man, it was a breeze. Jonas smiled. a boy. You off home now? Nah, thought I'd stick around and polish up the candelabras. Course I'm off home. Were you offering a lift? I wouldn't inflict that on you again, Jace. I wouldn't want to be held responsible for damaging your image. A word of advice, sir. You want to get yourself fitted with a flash set of new wheels, or you'll never pull a decent woman. I was wondering where I was going wrong. Driving home, Jonah wondered how Clara might have responded to Jace's worldly wisdom. From what he'd learned of her lifestyle before she'd upped sticks in favour of taking to the road in a campervan, She'd owned a smart car herself, and, like shoes, he'd always believed that a car gave away a lot about its owner. He could easily imagine Clara, dressed in a power suit, sitting behind the wheel of a sports car, mobile phone ringing, headlamps flashing. In contrast, his rusting Ford Escort, which would pass its next M.O.T. by the skin of its teeth, shouted from the rooftops that his attitude to life had a more casual slant. Sure, he could splash out on a better car if he wanted. He certainly had the money. But so long as his existing one provided him with a safe, reliable drive, he didn't much care what it looked like. And anyway, he had managed to pull himself a decent woman. He was seeing Clara that evening. His father would babysit Ned, and instead of taking Clara to a restaurant, Jonah had offered to make dinner at his cottage. Having already sampled your cooking and enjoyed it, I'll take the risk, she had said. What surprised him most about the evening ahead was not that Clara had agreed to see him, but that his father was so keen for them to enjoy themselves. Jonah had anticipated a somewhat less than enthusiastic response to his poaching Clara away from Mermaid House for the evening, but it seemed that the opposite was true. No, no, don't you worry about me, Jonah. You go ahead and have a little fun. It's high time you did. Ned and I will have a grand old time of it. Jonah was always suspicious when things came to him too easily. Everything he had really wanted in life, he had had to fight for. It was only yesterday that he had behaved like a pompous idiot with Clara over Val's diaries. Oh, he'd gone the full nine yards, but it felt like days ago. she had apologised over and over again for what she'd done, and each time she said she was sorry, he felt a bigger heel. He had tried hard to make her understand why he'd been so angry. It was reading them and having everything brought back so vividly, he had said, still with his arms around her. It was a shock, reliving it, I guess. she looked deep into his eyes and said, "'I'm sorry, Jonah, truly I am. "'It wasn't a gratuitous act on my part. "'I was genuinely interested in you all. "'I wanted to understand why your father behaved as he did "'and why you had such a bad relationship with him. "'I admit it was wrong of me to do it so sneakily, "'but it just sort of happened. "'I wish I could apologise more. "'I feel awful. "'I should never have said that bit about you and Emily.' It's okay, forget it. Though I ought to fess up the reason I became so angry and Joe Regular turned into Stormy Norman, I didn't want you to think I was a spineless wimp. I'd already decided that anyone who enjoyed teaching at a school like Dick High was anything but a wimp. She'd kissed him, then added, I've been lucky, Jonah. I've had what must seem to you a very boring middle-of-the-road but happy upbringing, and it's made me the way I am. Just as your upbringing has made you wary and guarded, not to say perceptive, It's also, I suspect, made you determined to fight for what you want, so don't go selling yourself short. In that case, dare I ask you to have dinner with me? Just the two of us? Is that a problem? Only if your father doesn't want to babysit. They had walked back to Mermaid House hand in hand, and as though to underscore what he'd already told her, he said, I'm not devaluing what Val wrote, but I can think of any number of kids at Dick High who have suffered far worse than any member of my family. Some of those kids survived levels of violence, abuse, degradation and neglect that make my childhood look like something out of the Waltons. I don't want your sympathy. She'd come to a stop and give him one of her stern but sassy looks. Don't worry, it's the last thing you'll get from me. Clara's first impression of Church Cottage was that she liked it. She could see why Jonah had bought it. It was him down to the ground from the cosy proportions of the rooms to the eclectic taste in décor and furniture. She had plenty of time to poke and pry as the moment he had opened the door to her the telephone had rung. Don't worry about me, she told him. I'll make myself at home while you see to that. Standing in the sitting room, which looked out onto the street where she had parked Winnie, she studied the small, simply framed pictures that had been squeezed in where there was space between overfilled bookcases. In front of the window there was a mahogany desk and two piles of exercise books along with a collection of wooden puzzles she pictured jonah patiently piecing them together either side of the fireplace where there was a wood burning stove there were two sagging armchairs and set out neatly on the mantelpiece a collection of old clockwork toys a performing seal with a ball attached to its nose a marching soldier beating a drum a laughing policeman and a strutting sausage dog with a bone in its mouth. She wandered over to the largest bookcase and ran her eyes over his taste in reading matter. It was mostly historical, with biographies coming close second, and the complete works of P. G. Wodehouse, Oscar Wilde and Evelyn Waugh bringing up the rear. An interesting mix, she decided, scholarly with a dash of whimsy. And no slacker when it came to matters of the heart, she thought, remembering their embrace on the moors, Their second kiss had been just as intense as the first, but in a completely different way. Slow and gentle, but sublimely erotic. It had held her firmly in a dizzy state of longing. Him too, if she wasn't mistaken. Through the open door, she could hear him winding down the call. Seconds later, he was back with her. Sorry about that, he said. A neighbour wanting me to keep an eye on their house while they're away. Does everyone rely on you? He raised an eyebrow. Meaning? Hey, no criticism. I just get the feeling that people see you as rock steady, someone they can turn to in their hour of need. A bit like you, then. She smiled. Touché. First point of the evening, do you? He smiled too. Well, that's the pleasantries dispensed with. I thought we could eat outside, if it's warm enough for you. Come through to the kitchen and I'll pour you a drink. The kitchen smelt heavenly, and she said so. Thai fish cakes. Wine? He held up a bottle of white for her approval. That's fine. Anything I can do? He passed her a glass. No, it's all done. I'm quite organised for a mere man, don't you think? Young Master Liberty, you wouldn't be casting your net in search of a compliment, would you? Credit me with more sense than to do that. He chinked his glass against hers. Cheers. They ate on the small terraced area just off the kitchen. It was still light, and just above a pretty lilac tree, a cloud of gnats danced in the warm evening air. The view from where they were sitting was stunning. This is lovely, she said. You've created yourself a proper home here, haven't you? He leaned back in his chair. It's going to take something very special to make me want to leave. Casper thinks it's a hovel, but it suits me perfectly. And what kind of house does Casper live in? A clinical wasteland, an airy loft apartment in Manchester, very grand and very expensive. What about you? What's Shea Costello like? Oh, executively smart. Four beds, two baths, double garage. Not very imaginative, I'm afraid. He smiled, but eminently practical, like its owner. Eminently practical. With the demands of my job, I had to buy something that would fend for itself and leave me free to enjoy my weekends with Ned. Patching up leaking gutters was the last thing I needed. Though I suppose you're the opposite. I bet after a tough week at school, you like nothing more than to get stuck into some house restoration therapy. Something like that. Between you and me, my next-door neighbours keep dropping hints that they might be putting their house on the market. If so, I'm hoping I might get first refusal. Knocking the two together would make a great conversion. I'd love to get my teeth into a project like that. Here's to knocking through, then, she raised her glass. You're a man of many talents, Jonah, if you say so. They continued eating in contemplative silence until the church bells struck the half-hour, and Jonah said, Clara, it's none of my business, but have you decided what you're going to do about Ned's father? She put down her knife and fork. She'd been wondering at what stage in the evening to bring up the subject that had occupied her mind for most of the day, and the decision that she had reached after speaking to Louise on the phone again. Yes, I'm going home to see him before he returns to America. When will you leave? In a couple of days. Have you told Dad? She shook her head. Not yet. I only decided this afternoon. He's going to miss you when you're gone. It works both ways. I'll miss him, she wanted to add, and I'll miss you, but her nerve failed her. Her come-hither skills were too rusty to dish out romantic one-liners. Instead, she said, and goodness knows how Ned will take it. He loves being here. Mermaid House has become a second home for him. Another silence grew between them. Finally, Jonah said, Is there any chance you'll come back? You've still got a few months before Ned starts school in the autumn, And you know you'll always be welcome. She knew what he was really asking, and she knew she had to be straight with him. Each day as it comes, Jonah, I need to keep the plans to a minimum. That's what I've learned from this trip. Nothing works out quite the way one thinks or hopes it will. Would it be pushing things to ask you to keep in touch, just as friends, perhaps? She stretched out her hand across the table and made contact with his. I think I'd like it to be more than that. But first, I need to settle things with Todd. I understand, he said, turning her hand over so that her palm faced upwards. Jonah laid his on top. Dispirited, he had the feeling that maybe this was the end between them and not the beginning as he had hoped. He could tell from the way she spoke about this Todd character that he'd meant a lot to her. He was the father of her son after all and now, after more than four years of not seeing him, who knew what the outcome might be of their meeting up again? The shrill ringing of the telephone made them both jump. That's probably Dad checking up on me, making sure I'm behaving myself and not besmirching your good name. She laughed. Tell him we're being very respectable and that although we're making mad passionate love in full view of the neighbours, I've still got one foot on the floor. He answered the phone in the kitchen, but the smile was wiped off his face when he heard Casper's distraught voice and what he had to say. Chapter 53. How can this be? It's against nature for a parent to outlive his children. Gabriel's voice was thick with tiredness and bewildered grief. Three women, all gone. Tell me why, just tell me why. He thumped his fist on the table, sent an empty coffee mug flying, and hung his head. While Clara picked up the shattered pieces from the floor, Jonah went to his father. It had been a long night, with only a few hours of sleep for any of them. After he'd received the call from his brother, he and Clara had driven straight over to Mermaid House to break the news. Gabriel had been sitting alone in the library, enjoying a glass of whisky and reading. "'What's this, Miss Costello?' he joked, closing the book and putting it aside. "'I didn't expect to see you back so early. "'Jonah's cooking frightened you off.' But he must have seen from their faces that something was wrong. Once the words were out, he had looked at Jonah as if he hadn't understood. Within seconds, though, his eyes had filled and his hands had started to shake. He had tried to stand up, but his body had failed him, and he had remained slumped in his chair. Clara had made them all tea, and while she was in the kitchen, Jonah had pulled up a footstool beside his father, taken his trembling hands, and then held them firmly. Gabriel had suddenly looked old and confused. Now, at six o'clock in the morning... As Ned slept peacefully upstairs, Jonah and his father were setting out on the journey to Northumberland. Neither knew quite what to expect when they arrived. Casper had sounded a broken man on the phone, but if his grief had turned to rage, it was anyone's guess what kind of reception awaited them. Before going to bed last night, Jonah had spent the night at Mermaid House. He had made two telephone calls. One was to a colleague from school to say he wouldn't be in for the next couple of days, and the second was to get more information from Rosewood Manor about his sister's death. He spoke to a helpful man called Roland Hall, who had stressed that he would do all he could to take care of Casper. He had explained about Damson's illness, and how Casper had been with their sister in the last week of her life. He had also given Jonah directions on how to find Rosewood Manor. Armed with these and an AA road atlas, he was now helping his father into the front seat of his car. For the first time ever, he regretted the state of his old escort, and just hoped it would get them up to Northumberland in one piece. Gabriel was too dazed to say goodbye to Clara, but Jonah stood with her for a moment. Nothing had been said between them, but Jonah knew that she and Ned wouldn't be at Mermaid House when he returned. "'I'm not sure when we'll be back,' he said. "'But when are you going?' "'Tomorrow morning. It feels the right thing to do. "'If you're bringing Casper back here, my presence won't help him. "'We didn't exactly hit it off.' "'I know the feeling.' but I have a hunch that Caspar is going to need what's left of his family. You'll take care, won't you, she said, opening her arms and hugging him. He squeezed her hard, then pulled away. You take care as well. If you want to ring or drop me a line, you know where I am. I will, and please explain everything to your father for me. I feel bad that I won't be here to help, but... He silenced her with a feather-light kiss, held her gently, pressed his cheek against hers, then walked away. Clara took Ned to the Mermaid Cafe for breakfast. Shirley greeted them as if they were old friends and gave them a table in the window. There was a lot Clara had to tell Ned, why Gabriel had gone away with Jonah so unexpectedly, but more importantly, why they were leaving. She hated lying to Ned, but she could hardly tell him the truth, that they were going home so she could arrange to meet his father. Instead, she told Ned that she was feeling homesick and wanted to see her friends. He listened to what she told him while he munched on a piece of fried bread, holding a corner of it delicately between his thumb and forefinger. He was such a tidy eater. "'Does this mean we're going home forever?' he said finally. "'No more Winnie.' She sipped her tea. "'Not at all. We still have two and a half months left before we have to part with Winnie.' He dipped the fried bread into the yolk of his egg, stirred it round a little. "'Then I start school.' "'That's right.' Will I like it this time.' You'll love it. Think of all the tales you'll have to tell the other children. They'll be so envious of what you've been up to. He frowned and wrinkled his nose, and Clara knew that if she looked under the table, his legs would be swinging. I didn't really like St Chad's, he confided. Maybe we'll find a different school. But don't forget, you're older now, and it will feel better. Also, you were missing Nana and Grandad. His face cheered up at the mention of Nana and Granda. "'Will they be home from Australia now?' "'No, they're not back until after Christmas.' Another frown. "'But don't worry. When I've seen Louise and the gang, we'll be off on another adventure.' "'Back here?' The change of expression on his face was so rapid, so telling, that Clara didn't know what to say. There was a danger that if they came back to Deaconsbridge, they might never leave. There was so much about the place she had grown to love, from the beautiful countryside to the busy market square so pretty in its summer finery, to the friendly people who lived here. Unwittingly, she and Ned had become a part of it, and it had become a part of them. It had also caused her to consider abandoning her old life and creating a new one here, where the pace was slower, the people more genuine. Deaconsbridge aside, there was also the small matter of their involvement with the Liberty family. She would never forget the protective love Gabriel had showered on her and Ned. And there was Jonah. With his benign social conscience, his understated charm and thoughtful kindness, he had achieved the impossible. He had tempted her to wonder what it might be like to be in a relationship with him. But where could it lead them? When she and Ned were back in their old routine, what use would a long-distance relationship be? How soon before it fizzled out? She felt sure, however, that even if it did run out of steam, they would remain friends. And friends, as she had come to know, were what counted. You look lost in thought. Where were you, lying on a tropical beach, having coconut oil rubbed in somewhere pleasant? Clara smiled and passed her empty plate to Shirley, who had arrived to clear their table. Not even close. Oh well, how about a tea cake? Ned, can you manage anything else? Kneeling up on his chair and wobbling from side to side with his bottom balanced on his heels, Ned puffed out his cheeks. "'No, thank you. I'm very full.' He patted his tummy. Passing him a lollipop from her apron pocket, Shirley said, "'You're the politest little boy I know.' Then, in a more serious tone, she said to Clara, "'Have you heard about Archie's mother?' "'Yes, I have. How's he getting on? They were very close, weren't they?' Cut up something rotten, but, like he always does, he's putting a brave face on it. It was the same when that stuck-up grabby wife of his left him, "'It was ages before he let on that she'd gone. "'If you want my opinion, he's better off without her. "'It was what everyone told me when my old man left me. thing is, you don't believe it at the time. "'But I'll tell you this for nothing. "'She was a snooty what's-it. "'Always looked down her nose at the rest of us.' "'She paused to let his customer squeeze past, then continued. "'The funeral's the day after tomorrow. "'I thought I'd get an hour off and go along. "'Moral support and all that. "'Did you know he sold his house?' He's moving into the square above Joe's bookshop. I thought I'd get him a housewarming present, something small, just a token. No point in being flash when discreet will do. Goodness, thought Clara, when Shirley left them to serve a middle-aged couple dressed in shorts and walking boots. What a lot Shirley has to say about Archie and how highly she regards him. She wondered if Archie realised what a devoted friend she had in Shirley. Clara paid for the meal and they left the cafe. Standing on the step outside, waiting for a young mother with a pushchair to trundle by, Clara felt a pang of sadness. Ned and she had probably eaten at the Mermaid Café for the last time. It was going to be even more of a wrench leaving than she had anticipated. Shall we go and see Archie, she said, forcing a brightness into her voice. The bell tinkled as she pushed the door of second best. It was a cheerful sound that had to be at odds with how the owner of the shop was feeling. There was no one about, so she called Archie's name. She heard the scrape of a drawer being pushed in, and Archie's head appeared from behind a pine veneer wardrobe. Hello there, he said, and what a sight for sore eyes you two are. How's things, Archie? I heard about Bessie. He pushed his hands into his pockets, jangled the loose change in them, rocked on his feet. Oh, not brilliant. Funeral's the day after tomorrow. She nodded sympathetically. I know, Shirley's just told me. I'm so sorry, Archie. He seemed lost for words, so she said, Shirley also said you were moving into the square. It's all changed for you, isn't it? It's probably for the best. Nothing like a shake-up. Fancy a brew? I was just about to make one. Clara was awash with tea from Shirley's generous ministrations, but she said, that would be nice, thank you. Turning to Ned, Archie said, have a good old forage in that box over there. If you're lucky, you might find a couple of jigsaws. Clara went through to the back of the shop with Archie, to a tiny kitchen area where there was only just room for the two of them. He filled the kettle at the sink where a bowl of used mugs lay waiting to be washed. Sorry about the mess, he said, catching her glance. It's always the same. The moment I leave Samson in charge, his voice trailed off. Hang on a minute, that sounds like the door. By the time he had joined her again, she had made their tea and given the kitchen a blitz. Here, there was no need for that. She smiled and flicked the tea towel at him. Drink your tea and be quiet, Archie Merriman. Leaning against the sink, he relaxed visibly. That's what I like about you. You always cheer me up. So what's new at Mermaid House? Apart from you having had flu, you look as if you've recovered well. Fresh as a daisy, I'd say. And you can save the flattery for the punters. "'Just speaking as I find. "'One look at you and I feel made up. "'Now, did Mr Liberty take good care of you? "'I bet he terrorised you into getting well, didn't he? "'I've told you before, he's a poppet.' "'She went on to explain about his daughter. "'I think her death coming out of the blue has hit him very hard. "'Oh, God, the poor man. "'To have lost two wives and now a daughter.' "'He lowered his eyes and delved into his pocket for a handkerchief. "'Life, eh?' If we had any idea how tough it would be, we'd give it up as a bad job. Clara's heart went out to him. What he needed was a great big hug. She was still hugging him when a crisp voice said, If I'm interrupting, I'll come back later, or maybe it would be better if I didn't bother. Neither of them had heard the shop bell or the sound of footsteps, and they sprang apart, which made an innocent embrace that seemed altogether more furtive. Stella, what, what are you doing here? Archie's voice shook with alarm. He fumbled with his handkerchief, pushed it back into his pocket. I heard about your mother and came to offer my condolences. The brittle formalities of her words was as flinty as the look she gave Clara, which left no one in any doubt of what she thought had been going on. Clara decided to make a tactful exit. She didn't like the look of Stella. Too much makeup, too much jewellery, and way too much high and mighty. Shirley had been right picking up her bag to go, she said. "'I'll leave you to it, Archie. Excuse me, please,' she added, when Stella made no attempt to let her pass. "'And you are?' "'Clara is a friend of mine, Stella,' Archie said gamely. "'But I think you gave up the right to know who I mixed with the day you left me. Thanks for the condolences. Was there anything else?' "'Good for you!' Clara applauded him silently. And even better, the horrible woman took the hint and departed as quickly as she'd arrived." "'slamming the door behind her and making the bell jangle long after she'd gone. "'They watched her through the window as she crossed the road to the square "'until she became lost in the crowd of shoppers and tourists. "'Archie looked anxious. "'Do you think I was too hard on her?' "'Clara smiled. "'Given the circumstances, you played it just right.' "'He laughed. "'And just think, she now imagines that her boring soon-to-be ex-husband "'is capable of pulling a woman as young as you.' He laughed so hard the tears rolled down his cheeks. What a joke! What a huge joke! His mirth didn't ring out with pure happiness, though. There was a strained false note to it that Clara knew echoed the emptiness of his new life. Watching him wipe his eyes with the back of his hands, she said, Archie, how's your social life these days? He shrugged. About as good as an agoraphobic hermit's? Why? In that case, I think it's time you did something about it. He smiled you asking me out on a date? Oh, dang, you've rumbled me. She smiled. Actually, I had Shirley in mind. Why don't you ask her out? I have a feeling she's quite fond of you. And just think of the great perks on offer. More fry-up breakfast and bake tart than you can shake a stick at. He rubbed his jaw, unconvinced. You think she'd say yes? I mean, well, we've been friends for a long time, but this this would be different. Oh, come on, Archie, try listening to me. The woman's mad about you. Clara wasn't sure that this was strictly true, but hey, what the heck. If she was going to start flinging Cupid's arrow about, she might just as well make a proper job of it, a name for a bullseye. Besides, Shirley wouldn't have gone on and on about Archie in the way she had if she wasn't just a little bit sweet on him. They stayed with Archie until Ned had chosen three boxes of jigsaw puzzles, having tried them all out, and Clara had explained that they were believing the next day. Is this the last I'll see of you both? Who knows, she said evasively. When the wind changes, Ned and I might just roll into town again. He gave her a final hug goodbye. You're a regular Mary Poppins, you are. Not got a carpet bag and an umbrella with a parrot's head on it, have you? She was almost out of the door when she was struck by what she thought was her second great idea of the day. She turned back. I know this is a lot to ask of you, Archie, but I don't suppose you'd do me a favour, would you? For you, sweetheart, anything. Just name it. But when Archie had waved them goodbye and shut the door, he wasn't so sure he would be able to carry out her request. Unlike Clara Costello, he wasn't a miracle worker. Before leaving the next day and with Ned's help, Clara prepared Mermaid House for the days ahead. Intuition told her that Jonah would suggest that Casper stay with their father while their sister's funeral was organised. Casper had been adamant on the phone with Jonah the other night that Damson was to be buried in the churchyard in Deaconsbridge, where their mother was buried. Clara had never thought of it before, but Jonah lived next door not just to his mother's grave, but his stepmother's. It was a weird thought. She changed the sheets on the beds, and working on the assumption that Casper would be staying, made up the bed in his old room. She cleaned the bathroom, and even did her best with the guest bathroom, which hadn't been used in years. The massive iron bath had more than a dozen rust spots scarring its interior and a dripping tap had left an ugly stain. She put some flowers from the garden on the table in the kitchen and left a note for Gabriel saying that she'd been to the supermarket and had stocked up on easy-cooked meals for them. She also promised that she would be in touch soon. Lastly, she added a postscript. This is obviously a time for you and your family to be alone, but I want you to know that I'll be thinking of you often. All my love, Clara. She wrote a separate note for Jonah, put it into an envelope and stuck it down. That was definitely not for Gabriel's eyes. She locked the door, slipped the key through the letterbox and turned her back on Mermaid House, wondering whether she would ever see it again. She wanted to say that she would, that she would make it happen. But she knew as well as the next person that life was full of unexpected twists and turns. chapter fifty four The silence in the car lay over the three of them like a shroud on the back seat. His father slept, and in the front, next to Jonah, Caspar was sitting with his head resting against the window. His eyes were closed, but Jonah knew he wasn't asleep. Never before had Jonah seen such a change in a person, normally fastidious about his appearance to the point of obsession. Caspar was unshaven, his hair unkempt, his clothes rumpled and his face sallow and ravaged through lack of sleep. He was almost unrecognisable. His grief was so tangible it shocked Jonah almost more than the death of their sister. When they had arrived at Rosewood Manor yesterday lunchtime, Roland Hall had been waiting for them. Jonah had approved of him instantly, grateful for his quiet, reflective manner, though his father had been less impressed. He had demanded to know what kind of a healing centre had allowed his daughter to become so ill that she had died without proper medical care. Roland had explained that Damson had chosen the care she wanted and that she had been seen regularly by an excellent doctor. Next, he had taken them to Casper. He was in Damson's room, sorting through the few belongings she had brought with her to Rosewood Manor. Quietly shutting the door behind him, Roland had left them alone. For what seemed forever... They had stood in awkward silence, not knowing what to do. Nothing had prepared them for this moment. Seeing a framed photograph by the side of the bed, Jonah went over to it. It was of Damson and Casper when they were teenagers, dressed in matching velvet flared trousers and cheesecloth shirts. They looked wildly attractive. They looked wildly attractive, and were undeniably brother and sister. They had the same long straight nose the challenging, flashing eyes and high cheekbones that gave them an, an air of lofty grandeur. "'Please don't touch it,' Casper murmured from the other side of the bed, where he stood hunched like an old man, sheltering from the rain. In his hands he held a silk scarf, which he was twisting around his fingers. "'Don't touch anything.' Joan and Gabriel exchanged glances. "'So what can we do to help?' their father asked gruffly. Casper stared at him blankly. Nothing, absolutely nothing. I don't know why you've come. I didn't ask you to. There was no cruelty to his voice, just painful detachment. We're here because we care. The blank stare swivelled round to Jonah. Well, as you can see, your care has come too late. There was a trace of blame in his tone. Gabriel moved slowly across the room and with his big, rough old hands, he gently removed the scarf from Casper's whitening fingers. I know how you feel, son. Believe me, I do. I lost someone who meant the world to me. But don't make the same mistake that I did. Let people help you. Jonah had never admired or loved his father more than he did them. What courage had it taken for him to lay down the past and reach out to Casper in the way that he had? Raising his head, Casper looked his father in the eye, but there was no clue in his face as to how he was going to react. From his back pocket, he slowly pulled out a piece of paper. The letter you wrote to her, I... I... he swallowed. I read it to her yesterday morning. She said it came just at the right time. Gabriel closed his eyes. Too late, he groaned. Too bloody late. I should have done it years ago. His body sagged. Worried, Jonah shot across the room and with Casper's help manoeuvred him into the nearest chair. Gabriel sobbed openly. "'My poor girl!' he wailed. "'What have I done?' "'What have we all done?' murmured Caspar, the colour gone from his face. There had been a lot to organise, and with Caspar and Gabriel in no fit state to do it, Jonah had dealt with everything. Damson's body had already been taken to a chapel of rest by a local firm of undertakers, who were delivering it to Deaconsbridge for the funeral later that week. There was endless paperwork and phone calls to get through, but with Roland Hall's help, Jonah got it all done. Roland wanted to attend the funeral, so he offered to drive Casper's car down to Deaconsbridge and catch the train home afterwards. It might be better if we did a swap, Jonah said, thinking of his brother's reaction to anyone else driving his expensive car. Casper might prefer to have his own car when he gets home, which means I'm afraid you'll have my old wreck to cope with. Whatever you think best. Jonah and Roland had stayed up late, talking long into the night. Jonah was glad of the opportunity to talk to someone who seemed to have understood his sister better than anyone. "'Does everyone here get such special treatment?' he had asked, conscious that his questions sounded disagreeably loaded. But Roland took it in his stride. Damson was special to me. "'You loved her? "'Not in the physical sense, if that's what you mean. "'I didn't exploit her like so many had before.' She needed someone to love her for what she was, battle scars and all. We were friends, close spiritual friends. He looked away, stared into the distance, lost in his own thoughts. Jonah realised that this man, who had taken Damson under his wing and given her unconditional love, which she had had from no one else, was grieving privately for her. They arrived home to find Mermaid House empty, just as Jonah had known it would be. But there were still some comforting signs of Clara's presence, from the freshly made-up beds to the flowers on the kitchen table and the two letters she had left for them. Jonah had told his father in the car on the way up to Northumberland that Clara and Ned would be gone when they were returned. He had explained the reasons why, and Gabriel had said, She once told me that we all scourge ourselves from time to time with a bit of soul-searching. Obviously, she knew what she was talking about. I hope the boy's father behaves decently. It was strange being home. Strange because though it felt familiar and welcoming, it no longer felt like home. Which was an absurd reaction, Clara decided. They hadn't been away for that long. But it was great to see Louise and the gang again. When she had phoned Louise to ask if she and Ned could stay with her and David, she had been met with, Oh, so you're bored with being cooped up in a camper van, are you? No danger of me being proved right, is there? Rule number one for us travelling folk. We grab the chance of free facilities whenever and however we can. You're nothing but a freeloading parasite, Louise had laughed. They had arrived at David and Louise's last night after a long, tedious journey. Guy and Moya were there too, and they'd stayed up late with several bottles of wine and a Chinese takeaway. Ned had fallen asleep on the sofa, and David had carried him upstairs and put him to bed. Just like old times, he said, coming down shortly afterwards. Except that he's grown and he's heavier. I'll have to get down to the gym and build up my muscles if he's going to keep growing at the same rate. It was now Thursday morning and Louise had managed to get the day off work so that she could indulge in a marathon gossiping session with Clara. She'd devised a simple but guaranteed way to keep Ned amused. He had been denied access to a television since March, so he was putty in her hands when she switched on David's latest toy an enormous widescreen telly. Sitting cross-legged on the floor, with a tube of Pringles and a pile of videos, he was hypnotised. ''I don't approve of you brainwashing my son,'' said Clara, when they retreated to the kitchen, and Louise put a large cafetiere of coffee on the table, with two mugs and a jug of milk. ''Now, don't come over the perfect goody-two-shoes mother with me,'' said Louise. ''Let me have you all to myself, just this once. And as I said last night, and I'll say it again, you look fantastic.'' Better than I've seen you in years. You're glowing with so much good health, I almost hate you. I love the hair too. Makes you look years younger. You should have seen me two weeks ago when I had flu. I looked like death on legs. Louise smiled. So bring on the lovely Jonah who took such great care of you. Give me a proper rundown on him. I told you everything last night. No, you didn't. That's what you were prepared to tell us as a group. "'Now that it's just the two of us, I want the important bits you've held back.' Clara reached for the cafetiere, pushed the plunger down, then poured their coffee. "'Honestly, there really isn't much more to tell. "'But you think you could go the distance with him?' "'I think I could, but I'm not sure that it's worth the trouble of trying. "'My life is here and his is there. "'Why invest valuable time and effort, not to say emotion, in something that has no future?' "'Louise added milk to her coffee and stirred it. "'You don't know that.' Not for sure. You wouldn't be hedging your bets by any chance, would you? Meaning? Meaning Mr. Todd Mason Angel. Don't forget I've met him. He's knockout smart and extremely easy on the eye. Just your kind of man, I'd say. Clara frowned. She straightened the mats on the table, squared them precisely. I admit he was my kind of man, she said thoughtfully, which is why I fell in love with him in the first place. But I certainly haven't come back here to meet him under the delusion that we'll magically pick up where we left off. I'm not that stupid. But how would you react if he suggested you did do exactly that? She was saved from answering the question by the telephone. It was David calling to say that the first part of Clara's plan had been put into place. Todd had accepted an invitation to meet for a drink after work. Except it wouldn't be a drink with Guy and David, as he thought. Ned didn't bat an eyelid when Clara said she had to go out for a while that evening. He was much too busy to worry about where she was going or what she was doing. He was showing Louise his scrapbook and he was telling her all about Mr Liberty and the amazing house he lived in, about the tower, the secret passageway in the library and the badges down in the copse. Clara kissed the top of his head, gave her friend a grateful smile and slipped away. Louise had kindly loaned her the use of her BMW and with the soft top down she drove to the Kingfisher Arms where Todd was expecting to meet Guy and David. It was a lovely summer's evening and the car park at the front of the pub was almost full. Though it was midweek, it seemed that everyone had decided to come out and enjoy the warm weather. David had told her that Todd was driving a hired, bronze-coloured Lexus. She saw it straight away and her heart began to pound. Inside the pub, she scanned the bar but drew a blank. She ordered a glass of fizzy water and took it out to the garden where she flipped down her sunglasses and surveyed the tables of drinkers. She eliminated them one by one, then she saw him. He was sideways on to her, dressed in his work clothes, a lightweight suit and pale blue shirt. He had loosened his tie, undone the button of his collar, and there was no denying that he stood out from the crowd. He had that indefinable quality that made it obvious he was from across the Atlantic. Part of it was the confidence in his bearing, The head held high, the neatly cut hair, the firm jaw. He looked well and just as handsome, just as she'd remembered him. The only thing different about him was the glasses. They enhanced rather than detracted from his features. She began the long walk across the garden, shaking so much that she was spilling her drink. She tried to steady her hand as well as her nerve. She was almost upon him when he turned. For a moment he looked as if he'd seen a ghost. His mouth dropped open and he simply stared. Then disbelief propelled him to his feet. Clara? She raised her sunglasses as though it might convince him it really was her, that she was no ghost. Hello, Todd. Mind if I join you? There was so much they had to say, but neither knew where to start, other than with a polite exchange. I like your hair. It suits you. Thank you. Same goes for you and the glasses. I hear you've been away travelling. Yes, life on the open road. How are you getting on with the French? Fine. We should be done by next week. The shares will really hit. Oh, hell, Clara, this is no good. Talk to me properly. Tell me how you really are. Tell me about Ned. About our son. Her mouth clamped itself shut. She repeated his words inside her head. Our son. Our son. Suddenly, she felt as if all the strength had been ripped out of her. If she hadn't been sitting down, she would have fallen to the ground. All this time, Ned had been her son. Now, just like that, he was to be shared. To her horror, she began to cry, but didn't know why. She felt Todd's arms around her, and she leaned into him, remembering how good he had always felt, how good it had been between them. Through blinding tears, she felt him pulling her up, then leading her away. He took her down towards the river, to the shade and privacy of the willow trees that arched their graceful branches over the water. I'm sorry, she gulped and sniffed. I had no idea I was going to react like that. It's just... He held her tightly. How do you think I feel? When I found out about Ned, I nearly went crazy. I've been out of my mind, not knowing what I should do. I so badly wanted to turn to your friends, but it was clear they didn't know about us. Oh, Clara, why didn't you tell me? She straightened up, pulled away from him. You know the answer to that. I didn't want to ruin everything for you. I knew how much your wife and children meant to you, and the day I discovered I was pregnant, you came into my office and told me you and Gail were getting back together. Oh my God, you knew then? He took his glasses off and passed his hand over his eyes. If only I'd known. It wouldn't have worked, Todd. Ned and I would have got in the way of what you really wanted, what you already had. Gail and your girls. She could tell from the look in his eyes and his silence that she had been right. She had been right all along, vindicated at last. She turned away from him, let her gaze fall on a pair of mallard ducks that were kicking up a row further along the river. Composed now, she said. Let's go back. I don't know about you, but I'm in need of a real burn the back off your throat drink. Their table was still free and after Todd had fetched two glasses of Jack Daniels she said "'It's important that you understand. I expect nothing from you. I made the decision to have Ned "'and he's my responsibility. I'm not about to make any demands of you.' "'Now hold on a minute, Clara. I hear what you're saying but the situation has changed. "'I can no more turn my back on Ned than I could disown my children back home. "'Don't I have a say in anything to do with him?' Clara felt a knot of panic tighten in her stomach. If Todd wanted to feature in his son's life, she would have to part with him. Todd would want to have him over in the States for prolonged stays, and the more that happened, the more likely it was that Ned would grow away from her. Tears threatened again, but she fought them back and took a gulp of her drink. She was being irrational, she told herself. She looked at Todd warily. ''What are you proposing to do?'' she asked. ''Tell your wife?'' He lowered his gaze and played with his glass, turning it round slowly. She knew she'd hit him below the belt, that she had deliberately tried to score a point off him. She felt cheap and unworthy. I'm sorry, she said, that was uncalled for. He let out his breath. It's a perfectly valid question, though, and one for which I don't have a ready answer. It's what I've thought of ever since I guessed who the boy with the neat smile was in the photographs your friends showed me. On firmer ground now, she relaxed a little and said, It's your smile. He shook his head. That's great, just wonderful. My daughters look like Gail, but the child I'd never seen takes after me. My mother describes his smile as a gift from the angels. Oh my, and who says we Yanks don't get irony? They sipped their drinks. You haven't married then? No, Todd. Probably something to do with not having the time or energy to bag myself a good'un. But you've managed okay on your own. I mean, financially. She bristled. Financially, I've been fine. Making money hand over fist. I'm sorry. That was rude and patronising of me. But it can't have been too easy bringing up a child on your own. Everyone says that to me, but it's been okay. Mum and Dad have been great. My friends, too. As if sensing he was treading on thin ice and thinking a change of subject would be a good idea, he said, So what made you trade in Phoenix for a camper van? I would never have had you down as doing something as off the chart as that. People change. she wanted to say, feeling another frisson of antagonism. It was Ned, she said. I wanted to spend more time with him before he starts school in September. It was now or never. So what kind of school have you got in mind for him? Again, she felt herself tense with possessive defensiveness. A dreadful school, of course. He looked at her puzzled. What is it, Clara? I'm getting the feeling I'm saying all the wrong things. She drained her glass. Forget it. It's me. I can't handle this. I thought I could. But the truth is I'm not sure I want to share Ned with you. I've done everything for him. Made all the decisions. Wiped away all the tears. Read all the books. Sat up all the nights. He laid a firm hand on her arm and stopped her. You did all that and much more because you chose to do it, Clara. "'Don't sit there throwing hurtful accusations at me. "'While you were doing all those things, "'I never even knew Ned existed, "'so don't try to make me feel guilty.' "'She pushed his hand away. "'And if you had known of his existence, "'what would you have done?' "'She watched him collect his thoughts "'before making his measured reply. "'You're angry with me, I can see that, "'and I can't blame you. "'But please don't think I don't care about Ned now. "'I do.' I have no idea how to resolve things, but I promise you I'll do my best by him. Which doesn't mean I'm about to wade in like an FBI agent and take him from you. You're his mother, and as we all know, it's mothers who make the important decisions when it comes to children. Dads are just hangers-on who need to know their place. He gave a small smile and said, You can put down your weapons now. She relented and smiled too. So, when do you want to meet your son? Chapter 55 The back door slammed so violently that the windows rattled. Casper was leaving the house to go for another of his long walks. Since they had arrived back from Northumberland, he had done a lot of walking, always alone and always for hours at a time. It was as if he was trying to walk his grief out of his system. Gable knew from bitter experience that it wouldn't work. They had buried Damson yesterday. It had been an exhausting, emotionally draining day an unlikely mixture of people who turned up for the funeral. Jonah and Roland had gone through Damson's address book and had contacted as many people as they could, working on the theory that because Damson was so pragmatic, if she had entered a name in the book, it was because she liked that person. Ex-husbands and boyfriends' names were conspicuously absent. Not knowing how Casper was going to survive the day, Gabriel had concentrated on keeping people away from his son. Their looks and words of sympathy, no matter how well meant, were not what he needed. Once the service was over, they had walked next door to Jonah's house, where he had laid on a modest buffet of sandwiches and drinks. While Jonah and Roland had poured drinks and chatted politely with the guests, Gabriel had grabbed a plate of sandwiches and taken Casper back to the churchyard. Your brother has it all in hand, he would said. Let's have some time on our own. They had sat on a wooden bench in the warm sun, just yards away from Damson's grave. The grave diggers had finished their work and the hole was now filled in, decorated with flowers. To the right of this was her mother's grave and further along her stepmother's. Gabriel had deliberately avoided coming here since Val's funeral and it surprised him to see how well tended the plots were. There was only one person who could have been caring for them so diligently and how typical of Jonah that was. There was never any song and dance about him. He never went out of his way to look for thanks and glory. It was a trait that was wholly reminiscent of his mother. "'Is this supposed to help?' asked Caspar, his gaze on his sister's grave. Putting the plate of sandwiches on the bench between them, Gabriel produced a dented silver hip flask from his suit jacket pocket. He passed it to Casper. "'Can it make it any worse?' Loosening his tie, Casper took a swig of the brandy, then another. He wiped the back of his hand across his mouth. No, you're right. Wherever I am, I'll always feel the awful loss of her. Better to accept the truth of that than spend the rest of your life running from it. Is that what you did with Mum? I never stopped running. It's why I buggered up things with you three children so spectacularly. I turned away from you, left you to cope with something you weren't able to deal with. It's only now that I've come to realise the harm I caused through my selfishness. Heartbreak rots our integrity, Casper. Remember that. And I'm telling you this because I'm being selfish once again. I need you to know why I behaved as I did. He cleared his throat. My biggest regret is that I didn't have a chance to apologise to Damson. Are you going to drink that flask dry? Casper passed it back to him. I think Damson was ahead of you, had worked it out for herself. She had? She was always the smarter one of the two of us, more astute than anyone gave her credit for. One of the last things she said to me was that we're survivors, not victims. Gabriel pondered on this. From what Jonas told me, Roland Hall played a crucial part in her life towards the end. Are you saying I didn't? At once Gabriel felt Caspar's body turn rigid on the seat next to him. "'No, I'm not,' he said emphatically, keen to avoid upsetting his son. "'There had been enough explosive outbursts from Casper lately "'when he had ranted and raved and thrown things, "'then left the house to tramp across the moors, "'returning hours later exhausted and his rage spent. "'It was just what Gabriel had done when Anastasia had died. "'I'm saying you, me, Jonah, we weren't the people she needed at that time.' "'Casper's chin dropped.' So what's brought on all this understanding, Dad? Bit of a change of tune, isn't it? Gabriel ignored the dismissive tone, and after a swig of brandy, he said, I came very close to killing myself last month. He waited for the words to sink in, then saw the disbelief in his son's face. You? But why? How? Yes, me, of all people. But you see, I suddenly understood how much I hated being alone and the reasons why I was alone. Having reached that conclusion, it seemed the perfect moment to take my cue to exit stage left. As to the how, well, picture the scene if you will. I went down to the cops with a shotgun, all ready to blast my stupid head off. Caspar looked suitably horror-stricken. What happened? You mean what went wrong? I didn't have it in me when push came to shove. Oh, I meant to do it, I really did. Maybe if I'd taken some Dutch courage with me... I would have done it, but there I was, bawling my eyes out, the gun shoved up under my chin, and an angel of mercy appeared from nowhere. He watched Casper's expression change to one of time to humour the old boy. She was an angel of sorts, he went on, although she doesn't have wings. He smiled. It was Miss Costello. Casper looked confused, but I thought she'd left weeks ago. She did, but she came back that day. "'Was it fate or just good timing?' he shrugged. "'Who knows? Sandwich?' "'No.' "'You need to eat, Casper.' "'I will, just not today.' The sound of knocking jolted Gabriel out of his reverie. He was expecting Jonah. It was the weekend, but Jonah never knocked twice. He knocked once, then let himself in. He opened the back door and was momentarily nonplussed. It was Clara Costello's junk-dealer friend.' Archie Merriman. They stared at one another warily. I was sorry to hear about your daughter. I was sorry to hear about your mother, they said simultaneously and in a perfect mirror image of each other. They looked down at their feet, not knowing what to say next. Crippled with embarrassment, they were like a pair of schoolboys who had been forced to apologise for fighting in the playground. Clutching a carrier bag, Archie hoped that he could live up to Clara's expectations of him. She had asked him to visit the Commandant with a view to keeping an eye on the old boy. He's going to need someone to cheer him up in the weeks ahead, she had said, and I can't think of anyone better suited to the task. Personally, Archie thought he was the last person on earth fit for such a task, but still she had thought him capable of it, so here he was. I've brought you this, he said. "'dipping his hand into the bag "'and pulling out a bottle of whisky. "'Just by way of saying, "'I reckon I know what you're going through.' "'Gabriel stared at the bottle. "'He thought of the letter Clara had written for him "'on his return from Northumberland, "'in which she had asked him, when he felt able to, "'to keep an eye on Archie Merriman in her absence. "'I know you like to think of yourself "'as an unsociable crosspatch," she had written, "'but underneath it all, "'I know you're the sweetest man alive.' who won't think twice about doing this one small thing for me. Just for the sheer hell of it, he'd show her what he was made of. He took the offered bottle and said, Mr. Merriman, it's a little early, but how do you feel about a pre-lunch snifter? Please, it's Archie, and thank you. A drink would slip down a treat, especially after the week I've had, though yours can't have been much better. You're not wrong there, not wrong at all. For once, it looks as if we'll get through an entire barbecue without a drop of rain. Clara passed Guy a glass of wine and agreed with him absently. Oh, come on, Clara, he said. Lose the long face. It'll be okay. Anyone would think Ned was being put through some kind of test. Louise came over from where she and Moira had been setting the table. You're not still worrying, are you? She said to Clara. Of course I am. Wouldn't you be if your child was meeting his father for the first time? Though Ned was at the bottom of the garden playing football with David and was well out of earshot, Clara kept her voice low. The important thing is that Ned doesn't have a clue what's going on, Guy said, equally circumspect. As far as he's concerned, Todd is just another of his mother's many friends. Clara knew that what Guy was saying was right, but oh, she just wished the day could be over. It had seemed so reasonable when Louise and David had offered to invite Todd to a lunchtime barbecue so that he could meet Ned in a relaxed setting. But now she was regretting the whole idea. What if Todd suddenly felt the need to blurt out to to Ned who he was? Common sense told her that Todd would never do that. He was one of the most rational people she knew. They had discussed this important day on the phone several times and had even met up again for a drink last night. He was as concerned as she was that Ned was not put through any emotional upset. It helped enormously that he was the same understanding Todd with whom she had fallen in love, and while it seemed a paradox, she frequently found herself thanking her lucky stars that she had had an affair with such a considerate man. Determined to safeguard Ned, Clara had laid down the ground rules straight away. She had told Todd that until he had decided whether he was going to tell his wife about Ned, and therefore offer a real open commitment. He could not reveal who he was. It was harsh, but it was Ned's feelings that mattered, not hers, not Todd's. Yet she wasn't without sympathy for Todd. She knew he was up against the worst dilemma he would probably ever have to face. But the cool, efficient and detached woman within her reasoned that it was his problem. She had cleared her conscience by telling him about Ned. What happened next was down to him. She could do nothing to help him. She was a hard-headed realist, if nothing else. She'd said this to Jonah on the phone late last night. She'd phoned him several times, always when Louise and David had gone to bed, and she could be sure of talking to him without Louise listening in. Nothing wrong in being hard-headed or a realist, he'd said. Did I say there was? No, but something in your tone suggested you were defending yourself. Goodness, you're being mighty forward all of a sudden, he'd laughed, only because I know I'm out of slapping range. After he'd brought her up to date with how his brother and father were getting on, he'd said, It's a pity you're not here. It's a beautiful night. He hadn't said that he was missing her, but the implication was there. Are you in the garden? On the terrace with a glass of wine and a bag of pistachio nuts. Sounds good. Describe the view for me. Hmm, it's dark and starry. Come on, you can do better than that. Did I mention the moon? No. It's very white and looks like a clipped toenail. Stop, you're spoiling it for me. Where's your romantic, chivalrous soul, Joan Liberty? It's cowering under the table, too scared to show itself. Then tell it to pull itself together. I've tried, but it's no good. It said, what's the point? Who's here for me to sweet talk? It had been good talking to him, and not just because he took her mind off Todd. Todd arrived exactly on time, just as Clara had known he would. One look at his face as he stepped out of his car, and she knew he was as nervous as she was. It made her feel better, took away some of her edginess, which couldn't be said of her friends. They tried too hard to show that they were relaxed with the situation. Louise and Moira laughed too loudly at Todd's joke about the weather, and Guy took the bottles of Californian wine he'd brought with such expansive gratitude that anyone would have thought he'd been presented with the Holy Grail. And while they tried to hide their awkwardness, A piercing squeal came up from the bottom of the garden. Seconds later, Ned came running towards them, his dark hair shiny in the bright sunlight, bouncing with each step he took. His face was a huge grin of delight. Mummy, mummy, I beat Uncle David. Ten goals to five. Breathless, he threw himself at her legs and raised his arms for her to scoop him up as she usually did. But on this occasion, she didn't. Ned, she said, this is an old friend of mine. He lives in America and his name is Todd. Have you got enough puff to say hello to him? Ned looked up at him and smiled confidently. Hello, Mr Todd. Do you like playing football? It was such an emotionally charged moment that everyone suddenly found something to do. The barbecue coals needed lighting, the salads had to be dressed and a new bottle of wine opened. Clara watched Todd's face as he hunkered down to be on eye level with Ned. Hi, he said. I'm more of a baseball fan, but I'll give football a shot if you teach me. Ned grinned. I'm very good. Jonah taught me when Mummy was ill in bed. He showed me how to tackle. Do you want to see? Todd glanced up at Clara and her heart twisted as she saw both sadness and joy in his face. Would you mind, he asked. She smiled. Not at all. They were three very important words, she thought later that evening when Todd had left for his hotel, and she was kissing Ned good night, Todd was nice, Ned said, snuggling down beneath the duvet, and holding Mermaid up for her to kiss him as well. I like the way he talks. Will he come and see us again? I don't know. He's very busy at the moment, and then he has to go home to America. She pushed the hair out of his eyes, and was about to get up from the bed, when he said, Mummy? Yes? He gave her one of his melting looks. "'What do you think Mr Liberty is doing right now?' "'Probably wondering what you're doing right now.' "'He seemed pleased by this thought. "'Do you think so?' "'Absolutely. You're a hard boy to forget, Ned. "'Can we go back to Mermaid House to see him?' "'She had known it would only be a matter of time before he asked her this question. "'Don't you like being here?' "'He hesitated, as though not wanting to cause offence. "'Hmm, it is nice, but I miss Mr Liberty.' Well, that's not a bad thing. It means you care about people, and that's good. It doesn't feel good. It feels horrible. His lower lip wobbled. Oh, Ned. She lifted him out of bed and sat him on her lap. It wasn't often, he cried, but when he did, Clara knew it was with good reason. She cuddled his warm body against hers, but the tears had taken hold of him, and there seemed no way to comfort him. Hearing the noise, Louise popped her head round the door. ''What's wrong?'' she asked, concerned. ''A surfeit of good times, I think.'' Eventually Clara settled him by promising that they would ring Mr Liberty tomorrow morning, so that Ned could speak to him. When she joined her friends downstairs, she sensed that they had something to say to her. They had formed themselves into what looked suspiciously like a deputation. Guy patted the seat next to him on the sofa. "'Clarabelle, for once in your life, you're going to take the advice of your friends.' "'And please don't take this the wrong way,' Louise said. "'But quite frankly, you've outstayed your welcome.' "'Yes,' agreed David, handing round cups of coffee. "'So you can pack up your things and go. We've had enough.' "'More than enough,' said Guy. "'If I have to hear one more word about Ned's superhuman friend, Mr Gabriel Liberty, "'I think I'll go mad.' "'And as for the wonderful Jonah Liberty,' said Mora, "'Well, please, is any man that perfect?' "'Oh, yes,' groaned Louise. "'If I have to eavesdrop on another of your midnight phone calls, I'll die of envy.' Clara stared at them, confounded. "'What's going on? What are you up to?' "'Get real, sister,' laughed Guy. "'You and Ned have done nothing but go on about Deaconsbridge. "'If we heard it once, what a fantastic time you've had. "'We've heard it till we're ready to go up there and see for ourselves the utopia you've discovered.' "'But—' "'No buts,' interrupted Louise with a warning finger.' If you hadn't come back here to see Todd, you'd still be up there in the Peak District, wouldn't you? Clara nodded. Possibly. No possibly about it. Now, what's stopping you from taking off tomorrow and seeing how the land lies? But why would I want to do that? Nobody answered her. They just stared at her hard. She knew she was being pushed into a corner, and that her friends wouldn't let the matter drop until they were satisfied. She decided to humour them. Look, the truth is, it has crossed my mind to do just as you're suggesting, but we told you, no buts. But Louise, I'm worried if Ned and I do go back, we might not want to leave. I'm sorry, call me a dumb old bloke, said David, but what's the danger in that? You've found somewhere you like, where you've made friends, and where there's even the chance of you getting off with a real live man. Explain the problem. The problem is you lot, what would I do without you all? Oh, so we're just here to be used, are we? Guy, don't you dare try twisting my words. I meant, how would I survive without your friendship permanently on hand? Moira shook her head. Poor excuse, we're not having that one, are we? Certainly not, agreed Louise. You left us behind in March without so much as a second thought. What's the difference now? Are you trying to get rid of me? Yes, they all shouted together. But this is different, she said, trying not to get carried away with their enthusiasm. If Ned and I go back and we find that we want to stay, what then? David sighed as if she was being particularly dense. You'll get a job, get Ned into school, and you'll find somewhere to live. And if it doesn't work, you come back here, Guy said. But what would be worse, doing that or knowing that you're too much of a coward to try it? You sneaky dog, Guy Morel. nobody gets away with accusing me of cowardice. Smiling, she thumped him with a cushion. I'm beginning to think that I would be better off living miles away from you lot. Louise grinned. I think we're getting somewhere. We're wearing her down. Oh, you did that a long time ago. But be serious for a moment. Do you really think I should go back for the rest of the summer and see how it pans out? All you have to do is ask yourself, what have you got to lose? Louise's question stayed with Clara as she fell asleep that night. The only answer she could come up with was that she had a resounding nothing to lose, but maybe everything to gain. With her fondness for having everything organised and every conceivable contingency catered for, Clara spent the following week planning. At no time did she let on to Ned what she was doing. There was one important phone call she had to make to her parents. I just wanted to know how you would feel if Ned and I weren't here when you came back from Australia, she said to her mother. Her mother went very quiet and said, Whatever decision you make, you know we'll go along with it. We always have and there's no reason why we would change now. You're the best, Mum. I know. Wonderfully modest, too. You would know, dear, like mother like daughter. Now, explain what you're up to, but quickly, this call must be costing you a small fortune. After Clara had outlined her plans, her mother wished her luck and asked if Ned was around for her to speak to. I'll go and get him, but don't mention anything I've just told you. I want it to be a surprise for him. The night before she planned to drive north with Ned, she met up with Todd one last time. His work was almost finished at Phoenix, and he was due to fly home in two days. They sat in the garden of the Kingfisher Arms once more, but Clara didn't press him for details about the future. She had no right to do that. I want to thank you for being so understanding, he said, and for letting me see Ned. A lot of women wouldn't have acted as generously as you have. I'm more grateful than I can say. But I have so much more to be grateful for, she said. I have Ned. He means the world to me. I know he does, and I can also see how much you mean to him. He's a wonderful boy. You've done a fine job of raising him. I'm just envious and shamefaced I haven't been there for you both when I should have been. There was an awkward moment when he brought up the question of financial support. ''I'd feel a whole lot better if you'd take this, Clara.'' He handed her a cheque, without looking at it, but knowing instinctively that he would have been generous, she passed it back to him. ''And I'd feel a whole lot worse taking it. When you know exactly what you want to do about Ned, then we'll discuss money, not before.'' ''Fair enough,'' he said. Then, looking faintly embarrassed, he added, ''By the way, what, what did you put on the birth certificate?'' She smiled and covered his hand with hers. What do you think? Your name, of course. He swallowed. You always did play it dead straight, Clara. Thank you for doing that. They exchanged addresses and telephone numbers, and after they'd drunk a toast to Ned's future, Todd took her by surprise. So, who's this Jonah I kept hearing about from Ned when he was trying to teach me to kick a ball? Annoyingly, she felt the colour rise to her face. A friend. A special friend. friend maybe. Ned seems quite taken with him. What's he like? Driving back to Louise and David's, Clara felt sorry for Todd. How complicated his life had suddenly become. He had arrived in England, a happily married man with presumably few cares in the world, and he was returning home with the knowledge that he had a son. Not only that, he had an unexpected emotion to deal with, one that Clara certainly hadn't anticipated. Jealousy. In his brief cross-examination of her about Jonah. He had clearly been troubled by the idea of another man forming a relationship with Ned. Funny that Guy and David hadn't undergone the same scrutiny. Chapter 56. For the last day or so, the weather had alternated between blustery showers and intermittent sunshine, But now it had settled again and the sky was blue, save for clouds of fluffy whiteness that bubbled up then drifted away on the light wind that blew in from the west. Standing in front of the mirror, Gabriel straightened his tie and admired his new blazer. He pushed his shoulders back, turned to the right, then to the left, and decided it wasn't a bad fit. He was glad now that he'd asked Caspar to take him shopping for some new clothes, and even more so that he had taken his son's advice and chosen the single-breasted rather than the double. Next, he turned his attention to his hair. Again, Casper had intervened and pushed him to have it cut dramatically shorter than he wanted. Grudgingly, Gabriel admitted that it was a great improvement. It made him look younger, distinguished, with a dash of jauntiness, he liked to think. He tilted his chin up, raised an eyebrow like Roger Moore did in all those old Bond movies, and mentally declared himself a handsome devil. Chuckling, he turned his back on the mirror and left his room. Enough of the preening. Time was of the essence. He still had lots to do. Ned and Clara would soon be here. He paused on the landing outside Val's old room, then went in. With Archie's help, he had spruced it up for Clara. When he'd mentioned to Archie that he wanted to have it redecorated, he'd said, I know just the chaps you need. Turned out that Shirley from the Mermaid Cafe had a son who, with a friend, had started up his own painting and decorating business and was looking for work. You'd better be cheap, he'd said to them when they arrived on their motorbikes, to give him an estimate. Just because I live in a large house, don't imagine my wallet is a bottomless pit. The following day, they'd shown up in a wreck of a van with a ladder strapped to the roof. Dressed in overalls, they plugged in a large radio that belted out something that could never be described as music, and got down to work, stripping off the old flowery wallpaper that had been there for more than 20 years, And replacing it with a cheerful yellow paper that brightened the room. Shirley's son, Robbie, had explained to him that there was a range of bed linen to match the paper and border they'd used, so he'd instructed them to get that too. Might as well go the whole hog, he'd said, handing over more money. They had transformed Jonah's old room too, giving it a fresh new look that they swore blind would appeal to a small boy. They'd worked quickly and tidily, and Gabriel was so pleased with the results that he thought he might get them to have a go at some of the other rooms, his own perhaps. Shirley had been a great help too. Funny that, he'd only ever talked to her in the cafe when he was ordering his lunch, but she'd been ready to lend a hand when he had mentioned the party he wanted to give. You'll be needing food then, she'd said. Want any help with that? I don't want anything fancy. You mean you don't want anything expensive, you old skinflint. She and Archie were somewhere downstairs. It was only a small party he was throwing, but he didn't know how he would have organised everything if they hadn't offered to help. He supposed Archie still needed to be busy. He'd had a tough old time of it recently, what with his wife leaving him and his mother dying, and Gabriel was looking forward to telling Clara that he'd more than risen to her challenge of keeping an eye on him. Under the guise of clearing out yet more junk from the house, he'd seen quite a lot of Archie, had found him an agreeable man, and he was pleased, if not a little amused, that he and Shirley were getting on so well. He knew from first-hand experience that it wasn't good to be on one's own too much. Having people around made things bearable. And that was what he had wished for that day at the Mermaid Cavern. He had tossed his coin into the pool and wished that he would have the pleasure of seeing Ned and his mother again, because when they were around, life was infinitely better. Downstairs he found the kitchen empty. An appetising smell was coming from the oven, but apart from that, there was no sign of any activity. Like Clara, Shirley was a tidy worker, and she put everything away after she had finished with it. She'd been coming to Mermaid House for just over a week now to keep the place in order, and the arrangement was working well. She still had her part-time job at the cafe in town, but as she had said to him after Archie had come up with the idea, We'll give each other a trial run for a month and this is what I'll do for you. For six pounds an hour I'll keep your home sweet if you promise to keep your temper sweet. How does that sound? It sounds to me as if we ought to spit and shake on it before either of us changes our mind. So far she'd been as good as her word. The rooms that mattered were as neat as a pin. He had no complaints at all. The only gripe he had was that Dr. Singh wasn't around to see how smoothly he now had his life ticking over. He'd heard through Shirley that he had moved up to Blackburn, or was it Bury? Any, Anyway, wherever he had beggared off to, doubtless he was poking his nose into some other poor devil's affairs. Though, of course, despite his annoying interference, Gabriel was aware that if Dr. Singh hadn't been such a nuisance, he might never have formed the friendship he now had with Ned and Clara. Or be reconciled with Jonah and Casper. He still had a way to go with Casper. His eldest son had yet to recover from the shock of Damson's death. He was currently dividing his time between Manchester and Mermaid House, and though it was hard work having Casper around, Gabriel didn't want him to be on his own. The more time they spent together, the more alike Gabriel realised they were. Neither suffered fools gladly. Both were as stubborn as hell, and they each possessed a temper that could scorch asbestos. And while Caspar's dandified arrogance and assumption that the world revolved around him would always infuriate him, Gabriel could, nonetheless, appreciate and admire his sharpness of mind. If only he would apply it to something more constructive than he had until now. In the meantime, Gabriel took it as an encouraging sign that Caspar had agreed to join the party today. He had expected his son to turn down the invitation, denouncing it as in poor taste. Instead, he had said he would try to put in a brief appearance. Jonah was the only person who didn't know what was going on. He didn't even know that Clara would be here this afternoon. He had been deliberately misled into believing that she was arriving tomorrow. Revelling in all this skullduggery, Gabriel had phoned Jonah and told him to get here when school was finished because there was something important they needed to discuss. Which was partly true. There were things he needed to say this afternoon things he should have said and done a long time ago. It was reading Val's diaries that had clinched it for him. Jonah had given the notebooks to him last week saying Clara had found them when she had been sorting out Val's room. Seeing the anxiety in Jonah's face Gabriel had guessed that he wouldn't be the first person to see the journals. They had made for difficult reading and it saddened him to know that Val had felt such an outsider at Mermaid House. What moved him most, though, was her determination to try to understand a family that had, in her words, had its heart ripped out of it. More graphically, she had written, I've been brought in as a plaster for this family, but what they really need is a tourniquet to staunch the flow of their misery. I doubt they'll ever know peace of mind, because perversely, they don't seem to want it." After he'd finished arranging the flowers on Damson's grave, Caspar straightened up, He flicked at a hoverfly that had landed on his sleeve and then stood still, his head bowed, his eyes closed. Anyone seeing him would have thought he was praying, but he wasn't. He was remembering Damson as a young girl, vital and beautiful, sharp and funny, willful and passionate and dangerous to be with at times. I'm just like my namesake, she would say to anyone meeting her for the first time and commenting on the uniqueness of her Christian name. I have a dark and sweet soul." That darkness of the soul, of which she had spoken frequently as a teenager, had frightened him. She talked endlessly about death and what it might feel like when you knew the time was near. Around the time of their 20th birthday, she had taken to disappearing for weeks at a time. He hadn't liked her doing that, had hated not knowing where she was, who she was with, or what she was up to. Selfishly, he had felt excluded but when she surfaced again, she was the same old damsel, ready to party and stir up some fun. In view of what Hall had told him at Rosewood Manor, it was possible that these absences had been connected with the abortions. He opened his eyes and sighed. How was it possible to be so close to someone and yet so far from them? Checking his watch, he saw that he would have to leave soon. He wasn't in the mood to be sociable, but he had made his sister a promise and he would do his damnest to keep it. He had let her down when she was alive. He would not do the same now she was dead. So, a party it was. He knew exactly why his father had chosen today to throw a party, and he supposed it was about time. But it was a woefully sentimental and symbolic gesture. And what a lot of fuss he was making about it. New clothes, a haircut, not to mention the bedrooms that had been tarted up for the benefit of the shoeish Clara Costello, the angel in the copse, and her son, who were coming to stay for the rest of the summer. Bizarrely, it seemed that his brother had fallen for the woman's shark-tongued charms, and stranger still, their father was keen to play the part of Cupid and encourage the blossoming romance. Oh, damson, he murmured softly, I wish you were here with me to witness this madness. He turned and walked away, back down the gravel path and out onto the road, where his car was parked in front of Jonah's house. He was now the not-so-proud owner of a second-hand Rover. The Maserati had been sold, and his beautiful loft apartment was on the market. The bank, the creditors, the taxman, they were all feasting greedily on his remains. But he didn't give a monkey's. It was gone. Another chapter in his life dealt with. Bruised and battered he might be, deserted by his so-called friends and treated as a social leper. But he was far from being down and out. Oh, not by a long chalk, it would take more rope than that to hang Caspar liberty. Ironically, his father, after stubbornly refusing to help him, had changed his mind the other day and offered to bail him out when he discovered the mess he was in. But Caspar had rejected the offer. Pride had made him sensitive to pity. Besides, Damson had left him her pretty little house in Bath with a sizable amount of money, which she had made from shrewd investments from her two divorce settlements. He planned to move down there and start afresh. A new beginning was what he needed, and, thanks to his sister, he had been given the opportunity to do just that. Damson's will had been clear on two points in particular, that a. she had been of sound mind when she had written it, and b. Casper was to be the main beneficiary of her estate, and that he was to agree to her instructions that Rosewood Manor was to receive a modest annuity from a trust fund she had set up. He had no problem with this. He might not like Hall and all he stood for, but he would always respect Damson's wishes. Darling Damson, how dull his world was going to be without her. Ned was so excited he was in danger of bouncing out of his seat. If he hadn't been strapped in, he very nearly would have when Clara swerved to avoid a large pothole. They juddered on and suddenly Mermaid House appeared over the brow of the hill. It was the most welcome sight, made her heart beat just a little faster. For the coming months, it was to be their new home. Before they'd set off first thing that morning, Louise had threatened to come up in the next week so that she could see Mermaid House for herself. You all talk, Louise, Clara had said, giving her a huge hug goodbye. You've never been further north than the Cotswolds. Yes, but I'm prepared to make an exception in this case. Guy had moved in for a final hug and produced an envelope from his jacket pocket. For you, Clarabelle. What is it? He'd smiled. A bet's a bet. Open it and see. She'd laughed when she'd seen the cheque for £200. She'd forgotten all about the bet he'd made with her, that she would be crawling home within a month and applying for her old job. Saying goodbye to her friends this time round had been tough, because in her heart she knew she wanted to give Deaconsbridge her best shot. She wanted to stay there and really make it work. Other than the brief sojourn in the States and her time at college, she'd never lived away from where she'd grown up. She hadn't felt the need to break away. But now she did, and tied into this was the realisation that she wanted to give herself the chance to discover what else she was capable of doing. The Clara Costello she knew was, and to the paraphrase her friends, smart, unflappable, hard-working and supremely resourceful. Less flattering, and to paraphrase her brother, she was a regular bossy boots. Give it time and you'll turn into a formidable old battle axe, he'd said to her not so long ago. Maybe she would, maybe she wouldn't, but unless she allowed herself this chance to find out what other talents she had, she would always regret it. She'd never liked the expression downshifter, but in essence, that was probably what she was opting for. A simple life that would enable her to spend more time with Ned had to be more enriching. Than than the hectic one she had tried before. And if it didn't work out, who was to judge and condemn the path she had taken? And was there really such a thing as a wrong path? Critics were ten a penny. There were people too scared to try it for themselves, too scared to break with convention and enjoy life to the full. But she wasn't without a backup plan. Gabriel Liberty's part in all of this was crucial. In letting her and Ned stay at Mermaid House for the rest of the summer, He was giving her the luxury of time and space to reflect on her new move. For now, she had only vague glimpses of the future. She saw herself living here, having traded in her overpriced executive house for something old with character, and odds on in need of some work. If she let her imagination break free, she pictured herself running a bed and breakfast. Okay, she might be deluding herself that she could scrape a living from it, but it was an idea that refused to budge despite common sense waving a threatening stick at it. It would take a lot of thought before she committed herself to it, and she might even come up with something else, but the big plus was that she saw herself being happy. Ned, too. And she would be the biggest liar that had ever walked the planet if she didn't admit to wanting Jonah to be a part of that happiness, just to see if he fitted into her life, and if she and Ned could fit into his. She pulled into the courtyard and before she had yanked on the handbrake, Ned was out of his seat. She watched him hurtle across the cobbles and pound on the door with his small fists. When Clara caught up with them, it was all noise and laughter in the kitchen. Archie was there and so was Shirley, wearing a PVC apron over a tight-fitting black dress. She was sliding a tray of sausage rolls out of the oven, her face flushed from the blast of the heat. With Ned held aloft, Gabriel came towards her. "'He stooped to kiss her cheek. "'Welcome back. You're late.' "'Well, well, well, and who might this handsomely rakish stranger be "'with his smart haircut and snazzy blazer? "'Where's the scruffy Mr Liberty I know and love?' "'But, Mummy, it is Mr Liberty. Look, it's him!' "'She smiled. I know, Ned. I'm only teasing. "'Ah, I see the first of the honoured guests have arrived.' "'They all turned. It was Casper. "'Brandishing a bottle of champagne, he said.' contribution towards the merriment. He put it on the table and held out his hand towards Clara. We didn't ever really introduce ourselves properly, did we? Casper Liberty, the family ne'er do well. He clicked his heels together and bowed elegantly. Clara shook hands with him, seeing him as other women might, handsome, charming, but above all, dangerous. For a lot of women that might be his appeal, but he held no attraction for her. "'We need to hide your van,' Gabriel said some minutes later, "'when the kerfuffle of their arrival had died down. "'I'll help you bring your stuff in if you like,' offered Archie. "'They went outside together, and after Clara had put Winnie out of sight "'and was passing Archie Ned's bag, she said, "'How have you been since I last saw you? "'You look much better, if you don't mind me saying. "'Thanks, love. I'm feeling great, on top of things again. "'And you were right about Shirley. "'No kidding?' He smiled shyly, and I've moved into what she calls my bachelor flat. It's quite comfortable, really. Us to fret over, if you know what I mean. It's been quite liberating throwing off a lifetime of clutter. You'd think I would have sussed that long ago, given the work I do. Funny thing is, I needn't have moved. Bessie left me her house over in Derby, and the money it's going to fetch, much more than I'd ever thought, could have been used to pay off Stella. She touched his arm. For what it's worth, I think you did the right thing in moving. Leave the memories behind. Oh, aye, I don't regret selling up. It was the best thing I could have done. Now I've got a bit of spare cash to enjoy myself. I'm thinking of taking a holiday. Do a bit of travelling. Good for you. Hey, I don't suppose I could interest you in a camper van, could I? Generous rates for friends. He laughed. Oh, that sounds dangerous. I might do a Clara Costello. Find somewhere I like and never come back. She wagged a finger at him. "'Not dangerous, Archie. Adventurous. Living life to the full. "'That's what you must do from now on. "'Just think of the fun you and Shirley could have in a campervan.' Jonah wondered what his father wanted to see him about. He had sounded serious on the phone, and he hoped it wasn't bad news. "'There'd been enough of that recently.' He drove into the courtyard and parked alongside his father's Land Rover. He knocked on the back door, then entered. Dad, he called, it's me, Jonah. There was no reply. Passing the gun room, he caught the smell of cooking. Bit early for his father to be getting his supper ready, wasn't it? He pushed open the kitchen door, but stopped dead in his tracks. Clara, what are you doing here? I thought you were arriving tomorrow. She put down the tea towel she'd been using to dry some plates. I could go away and come back in the morning if you prefer. Don't even think about it. He moved forward, was all set to put his arms around her and kiss her when he held back. Are we alone? he asked. He glanced over her shoulder towards the hall. Or are we likely to be interrupted by a curious son and a jealous father? She smiled. We're alone and you have full permission to make the most of it. He did. Afterwards he said, It's so good to see you again. When did you change your mind about coming? Oh, days ago. But you never said anything. We spoke on the phone last night and... The plot thickens, Master Liberty. Grinning, she took his hands in hers. I think it's time you came with me, but you have to promise to close your eyes. Puzzled, he did as she said and allowed her to lead him outside. He knew they were crossing the courtyard, but all too soon he became disorientated and didn't know where they were heading. No peeping, she said, just as he was tempted to open an eye. He heard a door creak and she told him there were two steps in front of him. He lifted a foot exaggeratedly, then the other. You can open your eyes now. He was in the banqueting hall. It had been thoroughly cleaned, was almost unrecognisable. There were candles everywhere and balloons and streamers. A long thin table ran the length of the room. It was laden with food. There was a square cake in the middle of it all, and it had small blue candles on it. And then it dawned on him. It was a party, a birthday party. His father came towards him with a glass of champagne. Happy birthday, Jonah. But it's not until next week. His father shook his head. This is your proper birthday, son. This was the day you were born and from now on, this is when we celebrate that fact. Still recovering from the surprise of seeing Clara, Jonah now had this second shock to deal with. Nothing could have stunned him more. To anyone else, it might have seemed an act of madness to accept what his father had laid down all those years ago. But it had never bothered him. All families had their foibles, their unique way of handling difficult situations, and Joan had simply gone along with Gabriel's wishes. But it touched him deeply to know that his father now cared enough to rewrite the rule book. He took the glass from Gabriel's outstretched hand. I don't know what to say, he murmured. I'm overwhelmed. Gabriel turned to the rest of the room. In that case, how about we all have a crack at it for him? With his arm round Shirley's waist, Archie raised his glass. Here's to new beginnings and making the most of what time we have. Here, here, said Shirley, clinking her glass against his. Or how about here's to Clara not discovering that Jonah's gay? Casper! Only joking, Dad. Here's to it, brother. May you always look older and uglier than me. May the heavens always rain on you and the sun shine its rays on me. Smiling, Jonah turned to Clara, who now had Ned resting on her hip. He was dipping a finger into her glass. And do you have any words of wisdom? I think I'm with Archie on this one. It's got to be to new beginnings. They sat in the gathering darkness on the stone bench beneath the library window. The air was warm and still, and way off in the distance a dog was barking. Archie and Shirley had gone home, Ned was in bed and Gabriel and Casper were in the kitchen tidying up. Clara leaned into Jonah and he rested an arm around her shoulder. A good birthday, she asked. The best. Even if Casper did try to bring your sexuality into question? He tilted his head back and smiled. I took that as a reassuring sign that my brother is on the mend. I'd rather have him like that than the shattered mess he's been since we brought him back from Rosewood. How generous of you. I'm not sure I'd be so forgiving. Don't go making me out to be a saint. I haven't always thought so well of him. He picked up her hand, raised it to his lips and kissed it tenderly. After a companionable silence had passed between them, he said, Clara, this might seem a strange question, but why do you and my father still call one another by your surnames? Because it's all part of the act we put on for one another's benefit. It would spoil everything if we ever stopped doing it. It's a sign of affection between us. A code, I suppose. A game that only the two of us are in on. Sorry if that excludes you. Don't apologise. I think it's nice. You realise, don't you, that it's going to be a strange old courtship trying to win the heart of a woman who lives with my father. Heaven help me if I don't get you home on time. She laughed. Only you would call it a courtship. He laughed too. What would you prefer to call it? She thought about this. Hmm, after giving it my fullest consideration, I think courtship will do just fine. Despite outward appearances, I'm a straightforward, old-fashioned girl who needs to take things slowly. Just my kind of girl, then. I bet that's not what you thought when you first met me. That's true. If I remember rightly, it was fear at first sight. I thought, here's a woman who could more than punch her weight. No better basis for a long and lasting relationship. Smiling, he turned his head towards her. Dare I ask permission for an extremely long and lingering birthday kiss? Permission granted. Having said goodnight to Casper, who had decided to head back to Manchester and not stay the night as he had thought he might, Gabriel stood in the darkness at the library window. With a glass of whisky in his hand, he gazed at the silhouetted figures on the bench outside. He raised his glass to both of them. Happy birthday, Jonah. By God, you've earned it. And to you, Miss Clara Costello, I may have lost my daughter, but I have the feeling I might be lucky and have the gift of another. He turned and looked up at Anastasia's portrait, conscious that she had waited a long time for this moment. We got there in the end, my darling girl. It took a while, but I think we got there. Raising his glass once more, he said, To you, my dearest Anastasia, to Val, And to Damson. In my clumsy, inadequate way, I loved you all. Damson died knowing that she and Gabriel had both come to terms with the wrongs in their family had forgiven each other. She had peace as she passed away. Gabriel has found a new and better relationship with his two remaining children, Casper and Jonah. And as for Clara and Ned, well their adventure in Winnie the camper van has been a wonderful enriching experience for both of them, fulfilling all the hopes Clara had as they set off and bringing so much more wonderful new friendships with Deaconsbridge locals like Archie and Shirley, and the chance to explore a new way of life with Jonah and, not forgetting, Gabriel and Mermaid House. Mermaid has a lot to answer for. I hope you enjoyed listening to these podcasts of Precious Time by Erica James as much as I have enjoyed putting them together. I'm challenged when I read Erica's books because she uses such a wide range of vocabulary, sometimes with words which have taken several attempts to pronounce. But I like the feeling of being stretched in my understanding of words, and it encourages me to try to use a wider range in my own writing. So thank you to Erica for a wonderful book, and thank you to you for listening to Read Me A Story.